everybody. This is Kale Clark. Welcome back to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and on the app as well. Continue to roll through Romans. Open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verse 15. We're going to finish off this chapter today. St. Paul writes these words, starting with verse 15, chapter 6. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness or sanctification. When you are slaves of sin, you are free in regard to righteousness, but then what return did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, so really what happens here is St. Paul starts off this little section very much in a similar way to how he began the chapter when he said, what shall we say then? This is uh, chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. He's basically saying, heck no, absolutely not. And he's really asking the same sort of question here in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Again, heck no. And again, he has to sort of say this because there are some people who are accusing him of saying, well, God's initial gift of justification is free. There's nothing we can do to earn it or deserve it. And the more people fall into sin, the greater the forgiveness is. So why not sin more and sin boldly, as Martin Luther said, to make God look even better when he forgives us? He says, absolutely not. Don't you understand that if you're living a lifestyle of sin, you are enslaved to sin, enslaved to the devil, if you will. So Paul is um, really saying this, and I, and I like the way Scott Hahn puts it in his commentary on Romans, freedom from sin is not a freedom to sin. And he says something very similar, Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, when he said, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What does he mean by the flesh? He doesn't mean that the human body, flesh and blood, is evil. He's talking about the sinful nature. That's probably a better translation. Some Bible translations in English actually render it that way. The flesh is the sinful nature. This is exactly what we put away, exactly what is supposed to die when we are baptized. We're buried into the death of Christ, like we talked about in the last episode, raised from the waters like he was raised on Easter Sunday in his resurrection. The sinful nature, the concupiscence, that wants to always drag us back down into a life of sin. That's what we have to fight against. 
So don't use your freedom to indulge in these things. Use your freedom to freely choose to live for God. That's what it's all about. It, it, it's a twisted thinking, this idea that um, we're now free to sin just because of the grace of God. It's a little bit like some Protestants, not all, this would be a mass caricature, it's not all Protestants think like that, like this, but some do. They say, and you might have heard this, once saved, always saved. This idea that you can't lose your salvation. You could see that if that were actually true, if people actually believe that, that could lead to a lifestyle of wanton sin. If you can't lose your salvation, why not go nuts? But that's not exactly what's going on here at all. St. Paul does teach very clearly throughout the New Testament that it is possible to lose one's salvation. And, and it's not just Paul. Other writers do as well. The church teaches this, that God does not take away our free will. And he's not going to force anybody to go to heaven. In 1 Corinthians, he, he gives another bit of typology here. He compares the church to the wilderness generation of Israel who escaped from slavery. Speaking of slavery, escaped from slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. And he basically said, look, all of Israel escaped from Pharaoh through the Red Sea, but not everybody made it to the Promised Land. Not everybody made it there. Some died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And this is like the church. Not everybody who's baptized, who makes it through the waters of baptism, not everybody makes it to the Promised Land of Heaven. Some fall in the wilderness of this life. They're struck down because of their disobedience. Now, We'll talk more about, about the wilderness generation in just a minute, but a, a big backdrop to this whole um, second part of the, of the chapter, chapter 6 of Romans, is slavery, especially in the, in the Roman world, which is not that well understood. It's a lot different from the type of slavery that we normally think about in North America. But more, more on this in, in just a minute. But what he's saying here is that if you look at verse 6, he says, do you not know that if you yield yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And it's, he says the same thing at the end of the chapter in verse 23, Romans 6, 23, one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. And some say that this is actually kind of the Twitter version of the entire book of Romans. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when he says sin leads to death, he's not necessarily talking about physical death because everybody, even the saints, as Han explains, even the saints have to undergo physical death. That's true. And this is because of original sin. This is because of what we've been talking about in the last couple of episodes. Physical death comes into the world because of Adam's sin. Original sin is passed on. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about another kind of death. Death, death, if you will. Eternal death, spiritual death of the soul. Being in a state of mortal sin, and if unrepented, that continues on out into eternity. Separation from God forever. So you do get a payment. If you're, if you're serving sin, if sin is your master, you will get paid. But the payment is death. Eternal death, payable on death. There used to be a, a Christian rock band called P.O.D., Payable on Death. And that's exactly what, what's going to happen. If we remain slaves to sin, we're going to get our payment. And uh, it's a harsh master sin, and it's going to be eternal separation from God. We don't want that. We want to be servants of Jesus Christ. 
And this is exactly what the Romans have become. And, and that's kind of the, the bad news statement. But in verse 17, Paul shows that he has really high hopes for the Romans, that, that they're not like this. He says in verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So they, they've done this. They've received this initial grace and forgiveness and justification. They, they're made right with Christ, and now they've begun this process of conforming their lives to him, a pattern of, of obedience. And this conversion, this is one of the times in Romans, actually, where Paul doesn't quote the Old Testament. He knows the scriptures so well, Rabbi Paul. This is one place where he, he's not quoting verbatim, but he, he certainly has some Old Testament verses in mind here. This is um, uh, really nice. When you, when you read these uh, next few verses here, when he says, starting with verse 18, you've been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness, Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, because you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. He's probably having in mind some passages like De- Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, which you can look up, and also the book of the, of the prophet Ezekiel is really instructive here. Ezekiel 11, verses 19 to 20. And then later on, in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27, we read these words. I will sprinkle clean water upon you. Now again, this is a a great Old Testament prophecy. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. That's an interesting passage, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. It's really prophesying baptism, isn't it? I will sprinkle clean water upon you. That's baptism. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. It, It can actually forgive sins. A new heart I will give you. Again, it's where St. Paul talks about the new man, the new woman, the new person who is created in baptism. A new spirit I will put within you. And I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. God gives us his spirit, his Holy Spirit in baptism. And that is the gift. He is the gift, the Holy Spirit, who enables us to actually obey the directives of God, which we couldn't do in our own strength before. You're listening to The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio. I'm your host, Cale Clark. All right. So let's see what he says uh, next here. In verse 20, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. <laughs> He's kind of taking a bit of a cold shot here at, at these guys. Hey, when you were serving sin, you were free in, in, in terms of righteousness. In other words, you didn't have any. You didn't have any good deeds. You didn't have any righteous deeds. You were kind of free from being good. And, and it's, it's a kind of a little a tongue-in-cheek insult, if you will. But he says, then what return did you get from the things of which you were now ashamed? The end of those things is death. And it's true that 
sin does pay, you know, following sin does pay, crime does pay a little bit, in that there might be a momentary pleasure from committing these sins. You you might get some sort of happiness out of it. And that's that's exactly why people do what they do. Aquinas says even sinners do those sins because they think it's going to make them happy. Everybody's looking for happiness, but they don't get it. They get most a, a fleeting bit of that, but it's out of context. It's disordered goods. Um, it's like relations, sexual relations outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It's disordered goods. Uh, it's called fornication. It's called adultery. And yeah, you might get the, the same sort of pleasure that you would in a married relationship, but it's outside of God's plan. It's sin. And so it's disordered goods. And so you might get a, a short-term return on this, but in the end, you're, you're going to be punished severely without repentance. It's not worth the cost. It's never worth the cost. The devil is a great salesperson, but it's never worth the cost that you're going to pay. It's not a deal. And so that's why he says, what return did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? At the end of the day, it will profit you not at all. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the payment, if you will, for following God is going to be eternity. And that is a, a great, great deal. And, and Paul says here in verse um, 19, way back in verse 19, he said, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. In other words, he's, he's using this analogy of slavery. He said, maybe this isn't the greatest illustration of all. Maybe this isn't the best way to explain it. But nonetheless, it's one that you're going to get. And according to scholars, there were 12 million slaves at the time in the Roman Empire which kept things going. The economy was largely driven by slavery. And this is where we have to kind of um, understand things a little bit better from a Roman perspective. Because when we think about slavery, and we're in the 21st century in North America, when we talk about human slavery, our minds naturally think about the transatlantic African slave trade in the 16th to the 19th centuries. But that's not the kind of slavery that was going on by and large in the Roman Empire, although, although part of it could have been. Part of it could have been. In fact, according to one scholar, A.D. Clark, Dr. A.D. Clark, and I like that name. It's got Clark with an E on the end, so it's the right way. How about that? Um, apologies to all you Clark with a K people, but uh, A.D. Clark says that really in the Roman Empire, you're in, anyone's existence is basically defined as to their relationship to slavery because everybody was either a slave a former slave, a freed man, if you will, or a free-born person. They were never slaves. And, and this is a, an interesting um, motif that comes up time and time again in the New Testament. Don't forget that Israel as a whole left the house of slavery in Egypt. And so what happened with slavery in the Roman Empire? And some slaves had better conditions than others. In fact, some people even volunteered to be slaves because they knew they would get three hot meals a day, and they would have some sort of a job, even though they didn't get paid for it. It was better than what they, what they were living as an impoverished person. But slaves were under absolute control of another person. They were regarded as human property. Unfortunately, the laws didn't, didn't apply to slaves. They didn't have roots. They didn't have kinship relations. They had no rights. They couldn't own property. 
They were socially excluded. They didn't have any honor. And they, they were liable to be punished. And, and there was no laws against punishing slaves, even corporal punishment. It wasn't considered unethical in the Roman Empire. And this is why it's, it's so intriguing that Jesus himself actually takes on the nature of a slave. One of, the, one of the interesting things, we don't have time to get into it right now, but the foot washing scene in John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, this was the duty of a slave. And Jesus, the Lord of the universe, does this for his, for his disciples. And so sometimes in the, in the New Testament and English translations, they'll sort of soften the word doulos in Greek, which means slave, and they'll, they'll change it to servant. And there, there are, of course, elements of service there too. But the, the point of the matter is that when you are a slave, you, you have no other thing going on. You don't have another job on the side. You're not, you don't have a, a side hustle. You, 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 are, you have to work for whoever the master is. And Paul says, when you get transferred into the kingdom of Jesus Christ, God becomes your master. And guess what? There are obligations that come into play as well. Jesus is your Lord, but he's a very benevolent Lord. And he is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. He has to have control over all areas of your life. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And, and just as the Israelites, when they, and this is really kind of new Exodus language here. This is the new Exodus from slavery to the devil. And forget about Pharaoh and his generals and his soldiers and his minions that the Israelites escaped from in the Old Covenant. Yeah, they were pretty brutal taskmasters. That's nothing compared to Satan and his demons and his minions who want to enslave you and I to a lifetime and an eternity of servitude to sin. No. And so this is what baptism is all about. Baptism, and St. Paul talked about this earlier in Romans, baptism is like the escape through the Red Sea. And this is why at the Easter Vigil, the celebrant will take the Paschal candle and he'll plunge it into the baptismal font three times. It's like Moses with his staff parting the waters of the Red Sea so that we can escape from sin and death and the devil through the waters of baptism. But when we come out on the other side, we have to understand that we have to get into this relationship with God. And this is why the Israel, some of the Israelites didn't make it. They, they, gave in, they gave in to grumbling. They gave in to complaining. They wanted to go back to the old gods of Egypt. They worshipped the golden calf. They were bitten by poisonous snakes, and they died. And that's kind of an image of the, of the reality that the devil can still try to bite us, that ancient serpent, and give us this mortal wound. It's called mortal sin. This is what happens when we're disobedient to God. And, and this, this, this is a wilderness time of testing for the people of God in this life, post-baptism, before the second coming of Christ, or before our death, which is when Christ comes for you personally. Uh, whether he's come back to earth or not, it doesn't matter. That is the end of the world for you. And so... This is really what we have to keep in mind here when we're reading chapter 6. Okay, so that is Romans chapter 6. We're going to do chapter 7 in the next episode of The Faith Explained. Don't fear, don't go away, because we've got, again, a Faith Explained mailbag question, which we're going to get into. So let's open up the Faith Explained Q&A session right now. Hey, welcome back to The Faith Explained. I'm Cale Clark. This is our Q&A session. You can send me a question in our mailbag, you can send it via email. The address is faith at relevantradio.com, faith at relevantradio.com. And you can also find me on the X app at Kale Clark, C-A-L-E Clark with an E. 
And last time we started talking about my top 10 verses about worship, worship music, that is, in the Bible. I had a listener question about why it's important that we have music in our worship. And let me give you the, uh, the, the end of, of this list here. Uh, in the last episode, you can check the first four. I want to talk about my fifth most popular verse when it comes to music in the Bible. That's 1 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 16. It says, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. And this, so this is kind of an extra job for the Levites. Not only did they were they expected to serve as the priests for ancient Israel, the ministerial priests, but guess what? David gives them a new responsibility. You guys are the music department now, too. Oh, great. Okay, well... We don't know what we're doing, but they, I'm sure they figured it out. And they, they tried to raise sounds of joy. And so this is actually a really uh, interesting passage. The whole chapter is interesting. If you look at First Chronicles, the very next chapter, chapter 16, it talks about uh, how they worship for all of Israel. All right, so let's go to the next verse. This is number six on my list. And this is from the book of Ezra. We don't really read the book of Ezra that much, but... In Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, we read this. It says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. This is really interesting. This is when the uh, the Israelite exiles come back, of course, from captivity in Babylon, and they got to rebuild Jerusalem, got to rebuild the wall, they've got to rebuild the temple. And so they're kind of laying the foundations. And, and this is a great moment of praise. And, and this is exactly the kind of praise that David did himself when he danced before the ark, when he first brought the ark to Jerusalem, when and, and Solomon eventually built the temple. David kind of planned it, but it was actually built by his son Solomon. And again, you can read more about that in First Chronicles chapter 16. Okay, so let's go now to the next verse. Let's flip over to the New Testament. And this actually has an application to more than just music here. This is from Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 18 and 19, Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Okay, so this is interesting because a lot of people, (laughs) this is actually news to a lot of Catholics, that drunkenness is a sin. It's actually a mortal sin. And people say, why is that? Well, it's because when we are under the influence of alcohol or another drug, this would apply to drug abuse as well, we kind of lose the image of God, which we have, which is essentially that we have a rational soul. And if you've ever been around people who've had too much to drink, then uh, you know that they're not exactly acting rationally, and they are prone to all kinds of sin. And, and so this is a, a, an inappropriate uh, thing for a child of God. Now, nothing wrong with having a glass of wine or a stein of beer, but... 
as G.K. Chesterton said, we thank God for beer by not drinking too much of it. <laughs> not sure he always followed his own advice, but but th- this is the difference between uh, enjoying something that God's given to, to gladden our hearts and uh, going into full-blown drunkenness. We don't want to do that. But in the, in the world of St. Paul and the Roman Empire, of course, wine was something that people drank pretty much with almost every meal. There, there weren't a selection of soft drinks back then. And they actually uh, fermented wine in order to keep it from turning into vinegar, which you know, might be good for a cleaning product, but not so much for drinking. He's like, look, don't, don't get drunk with wine. But there's no limit to how much you can drink of the Spirit of God, being filled with the Spirit. And this idea of addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it doesn't mean that whenever we see each other, we should you know, do a little impromptu karaokeing with each other. But, but what, um, what it does mean is that um, we're filled with, with this song in our hearts, if you will. We're praising God. And yeah, you can actually sing out loud. Uh, why not? And uh, th- this is a, another great verse of mine when it comes to that. Okay, let's look at a couple more real quick. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 15. Paul says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So, hey, why, why not whistle as we work, as the, as the seven dwarves used to sing about? And you can sing praise to God all day long. Uh, if you're by yourself, if you're working alone or in your office, then, then you're not going to bother anybody. And you might, colleagues might not appreciate your singing, but, but uh, you can certainly have that song in your heart. Uh, as you go along. All right, so let's uh, do a couple more here. Second Chronicles, back in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles 7, verse 6. It says, The priest stood at their posts, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made, for giving thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry opposite them, the priests sounded trumpets, and all Israel stood. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is actually from Psalm 136. And uh, it really does um, have to do with singing and worshiping in the temple. And then this last one, uh, the 10th verse I'm going to give you, is from Psalm 96. Now, Psalm 96, the whole psalm is really, really good. But there's a lot of stuff that's in here that we need to pay attention to. It says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. What's great about this is that this kind of looks forward to the Gentiles being included in the worship of Israel, the one true and living God. Declare his glory among the nations, the Gentiles. This is looking forward to the Catholicism of the church. And um, it says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the quote-unquote gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. It goes on to say, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And so this is just a great, great uh, psalm of praise. As one writer said, we've got to praise the true and living God, these worthless idols of the Gentiles. This would be close to saying, you know, these so-called mighty beings are mighty useless. They're either not real or they're demons in disguise. We don't want that. We want the true and living God. We've got to worship him in spirit and truth and also in song as well. My thanks to 
uh, the writers of the ESV commentary for some of these uh, verses that I've shared with you. So if you have a question for me, you can uh, send it to me at faith at relevantradio.com. That's the email. Follow me on Twitter at Gail Clark, and I'll catch you in the next episode of The Faith Explained.